Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, the economy has got a lot of people worried about their future. There's a lot of Americans say that their financial plans have changed. Some thought retirement was ahead of them. Others are going back to work. But how should we view retirement? How should we look at it? There's kind of a lie to retirement. And we're going to talk about that today with Joel Malik. He has re-released his book, After Work. He co-authored it with Alex Lippert, and they've uh, written a book called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Joel, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. How you been? Well, I've been well, and we need to talk again uh, because a lot's happened since the pandemic, and I think it has shifted the way people think about their financial situation and their retirement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. Since we released our first version of the book, we just self-published. It was kind of something we wrote more for our clients because we we wanted them to have a resource that wasn't so financially oriented. Uh-huh. And it looked at the non-financial factors to retirement because we found that, you know, people, they, they just didn't plan for that side of it because they assumed it would be easy and good. And and not that it's not good, it can absolutely be, but there's some real intentionality that's required, I think. So um, our our little book was picked up by uh, Tyndale and has since been republished, and we've got some exciting things, I think, to share with you. Mm-hmm. So maybe the pandemic, maybe it made people's situations worse, um, maybe people's anxiety about their resources and their finances are higher as a result of that. What, what have your clients been saying to you? What, what have you heard? What's word on the street? Well, I think we're getting a real shift to, um, you know, maybe our book was a little bit uh, ahead of the narrative changing, but I think we're stepping into this now, which okay. is, look, what is retirement, actually? That's a really good question. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's kind of interesting, Bill. Um, retirement didn't exist until about 1885, um, there were a number of factors going on, and as we rounded uh, the century mark and, and we came into the early 20th century, we entered the Great Depression, a very trying time for our country, and this is where it really took hold. But it's interesting, you know, like if we if we read Scripture, we want to understand the context in which it was written so that we can really understand what it's communicating to us. Well, the retirement setting is kind of similar in that we were essentially being forced to retire by the government, Social Security Act and a few other things, because uh, older people wouldn't leave their jobs, and, and the government wanted younger people to have the jobs. So they created these incentives to essentially try to make older people go away. Um, so it was never a biblical thing to to retire. You know, you don't stop having a purpose at 66. So. True. You know, when we when we kind of understand the reason it came about, that doesn't feel, sound so dreamy, does it? No, no. <laughs> um, you know, so I just find it interesting that that's how it started, and we've kind of turned it into this uh, this dream. But what what we're learning is, 
people are starting to realize like, hey, wait, I don't actually enjoy doing nothing all that much. Um, I'm sorry that this is what society has tried to sell us, but I'm not buying it. I I do want a different season. I might not be able to run a, a radio show or a podcast like you do, Bill, from – I know how many hours it takes you to do this. You're not going to be able to do that when you're 80, probably. Mm -hmm. um, so you do need a change of speed, so to speak, but you're still going to need something to wake up to on Monday morning. And that's what we're talking about in the book After Work is how to find this balance between purpose and calling in retirement. Nice. Joel Malik is my guest, and his book is called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Um, Joel, maybe we can talk about the retirement lie. What is that? Yeah, so the retirement lie is that a self-focused, slightly withdrawn retirement, sort of the stepping out of your contribution to things, like your your best days are behind you, um, that that season is going to be enjoyable and fulfilling. Um, what What we've learned is that if the season becomes all about you, and not about other people, that it is going to end up being a letdown. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're sold this idea of what could possibly go wrong with double the free time and no real structure. <laughs> and what we've learned is a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. um, now, I get it. A lot of people have worked for 30 years, 40 years. They've poured themselves into whatever they define as work, whether it was raising the kids or going to an actual place of work for all this time, what people mostly need, Bill, is a break. They need a good six months, and we call this the retirement sugar rush season. It's We kind of liken it to a honeymoon at, is to a marriage. It's like the honeymoon's a fun season, but it's not how you live the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, the, the we, sugar call that, rush is, we call that a sugar yeah. rush, huh? The sugar yeah, rush yeah. phase of retirement. Yeah, and the funny thing about that is is when you step into the sugar rush, um, everything is what you dreamed it could be because, hey, you do need a break, and now yeah. you don't have to set the alarm. You can go do all these fun things, but then the winter rolls around. It gets dark earlier, stays dark later, can't go outside as much, and you really run into this real problematic season. Mm -hmm. Joel, there's a difference. I know you talk about this in the book between happiness and meaningfulness. Do, yeah. Don't the two go hand in hand? Uh, not really. I think we see them as almost opposites in a way. Um, happiness is kind of this thing that we continually try to chase. It's very elusive. And we try to obtain happiness by either uh, gaining things like a, a vacation home, an RV, or doing things, a trip around the world, a long cruise. Um, all of these things can be good, but they should not be the main course on the dish. I call them the garnish. But we try to make them the main course. When we make them the main course, there's no sustenance in the meal, if you catch my, my illustration. So what I tell people, meaningfulness needs to be the main course. And the way we gain meaningfulness, Bill, is almost always in doing something for someone else. Yes. So Serving. it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got all kinds of stories I could share, but I will tell you this. The core nucleus of that is it doesn't involve you. It involves you breathing life into someone else. Yeah, it's so true. So staying busy in retirement may not be the best strategy. No, actually, I, I don't like busyness in retirement, and I'll tell you why. Uh, some of uh, the least purposeful people I know are the busiest. And 
it's a natural go-to because we want to fill up all this free time we have. We go from about six hours to seven hours a day of free time to 16. Um, and we don't know what to do with it, and we feel less useful. And so we our go-to easy button is just get busy. And when we get busy, we don't have to think about the fact that we're not being purposeful. And it's sort of this weird mirage because we think we're doing the right things, but years later we feel like, what have I really accomplished? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Joel, in your book, After Work, you encourage people to look at their lives and the choices they've made backwards. What, yeah. what would that do yeah. to your perspective? How, how would that help? Yeah, no, that's a good one. Uh, I came up with kind of a fun term uh, that just sounds cool. It's called the deathbed decision matrix. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> you know, sounds like something out of Hollywood. Um, you know, but the idea here is that when you're trying to plan, let's call it, let's say you're five years from retirement, you're trying to think through like, when the season comes up, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? And sure, you're going to blend in some of the really fun stuff. But I'm talking more about what ways am I going to make an impact? What's going to get me up on Tuesday, eight months into retirement when it's blowing 50 and cold out? <laughs> you know, and, and what I like to do is I like to think through that through the death bed decision matrix, which is if I have the opportunity to have some time to reflect at the end of my life, Lord willing, and my family's around me, what are the things that I'm going to wish I could go back and do more of? Mm. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that all of the answers, they're going to be a little varying, but they're all going to have another nu- kind of a nuclear center. And that is they're going to have to do with the people in your lives, the legacy you've left, the impact you've made to others. They're not going to be, I wish I could shoot one more round of 73. Right, right. Right. Um, and so we try to map it out. I, I like golf. I'm not against golf. Um, but I think we need to think differently about the way we approach things. And if we've got one more minute, I'll, I'll give you a quick tangent story on the whole golf pickleball. Thing. Yeah, please. So I love sports. I think it's fun. I think you need to weave these things into your life, especially in retirement. You get some more free time. Don't have to hit the alarm every morning. That's great. Totally in support of that. But I want a little mind shift here because this will make a big impact on your life. Let's say the next time you go golfing, it's not so much about the score. It's not so much about trying to beat your last round. Let's make it about who are you going with, and can you start speaking into their life and getting to know them on a deeper level? You're kind of you know, pursuing this, this calling in your heart that God puts in all of us to help others, and maybe they're going through a, a family thing they're dealing with or their kids are struggling. Maybe there's a way you can be praying for them or supporting them. So you're really there sort of on mission and you're enjoying around the golf. It's just a different way, a different lens to look through all the things you do in your life. Mm-hmm. Joel, I know you've had a lot of opportunity to counsel uh, clients, and I bet they have expressed to you some of the regrets they've had. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a few things are, you know, due to some, you know, not so good choices along the way. Um, or just not willing to maybe take that step in terms of like physical fitness and things like that. They can't go on the the important trip or go on that trip with their grandchild because they just simply don't have the health to support it. So, you know, one regret we see is like, I wish I would have stuck with that fitness thing, mm-hmm. even if it was just a, a three mile walk in the neighborhood because I couldn't jog anymore. You know, a lot of them have given up on on staying active. And that's definitely been one of them. 
the other one, this is a big one. There's a study out of Harvard that's been going for 85 years. It's the longest study in history that we know of. And they're trying to figure out what leads to a happy life. Um, and obviously very secular in nature in terms of how they approach it. But for the faith-based community, a lot of good takeaways here, but I'll just cut to the chase. The number one thing that they attribute to uh, providing happiness in life is the quality of relationships. And, and the way to define this is, is who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared and they would come help you? Um, and, and the reason this is important is a lot of people, when they retire, they don't intend to lose relationships, but they step out of all that structure that they stepped into every day when they went to work or taking their kids around to different things. And they no longer have that anymore. So all that structure fades away and they tend to let these relationships wane. And believe it or not, Bill, um, a study Cigna did says that loneliness is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Boy. Um, it's very damaging for your health. So we encourage people, don't let the relationships go. Look at it as social fitness. Mm -hmm. Like get it on the calendar every week. You got to get with people. You got to build relationships even when you don't want to because it's that important. Huh. So, so interesting. Joel Malik is my guest. His book is called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. We'll take a little break and come back. If you have a question for Joel, and you might have a question, you can text it over, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. I'm back with Joel Malik. He's written a book called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Um, Joel, in your book, you, you do talk about 10 vital keys to consider for retirement. Can you give me a few of those? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what we're trying to do in the book is help set people up in the right posture and momentum to really pursue whatever calling they have. We know everyone's got a little different calling, so we're not trying to have a step-by-step -step guide necessarily to purpose, but just to get the, the soil kind of tilled right so, so that it can take root. And I'll give you a, a couple examples. I mean, one of them is journaling. Uh, gets a lot of comments to the for the better or for worse. Um, and an example as to why that's important in retirement is we've learned that. And, and by the way, before I, I give that answer, I just want to say that it's really hard to flip all these switches right when you retire. So these disciplines are really ideal for someone uh, before retirement, mm -hmm. so they have some time to work them through and learn what works for them, so that they're they've got a smooth transition into retirement. So it's not like, hey, pick up all these things overnight. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, but specifically with journaling, the reason I think it's so critical, and we talk about in the book how to journal in a sustainable way, what to put in an entry that you're going to like. And the reason I know is I've been journaling for 15 years, so I've learned uh, from reading back what I've found the most useful in the future. Um, so I've given you 15 years of tips um, in that chapter. But what I know about retirees, Bill, is that they're going to feel uh, more useless 
in retirement than they ever have in their life. They might not think they're going to. And that's what's tricky about this season is once you get into it, you just feel like, am I making an impact anymore? Am I making a difference? And, and we're hardwired for that. Um, and so what journaling helps with is seemingly an entire year will go by and you feel like you're not accomplishing that much. But if you can take some time to go back and read your journal uh, at the end of the year, or at a few points throughout the year, you are always going to be blown away at how much more you accomplish than you actually remember accomplishing. Mm. Um, and it's going to give you a real sense of like, I'm making progress. I'm making an impact. I forgot about this or that. That's a great reminder. It gives me some, some breathes new life into me. Um, and it also helps you process some things um, because one problem with the retirement season is we do face a lot of loss. Um, whether it's friends or family or loved ones, it's just a fact, loss of health. And that journaling is a safe place for you to go and get some of those emotions out on paper without you, you know, letting those emotions wreak havoc on other people in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just find a, a real benefit with, with journaling as a great example. Um, and then one other one, if you've got a minute, I'll, I'll tell you about it. Please. This is a little more elusive. Uh, we call it awe. Uh, like AWE, like you're in awe of something. Um, And this is neat because, uh, well, I'll just kind of give you a quick illustration. I I don't know about you, but I've always been kind of enamored with flying. It's just kind of odd to me that these, you know, 30-ton things can fly us across the country in a few hours. Um, And every time I'm in, like, LaGuardia, New York, or, you know, these big cities that are beautiful, it always surprises me how people on the – window seats always have their window shades down, you know, and it's a reminder to me that we have just lost touch with how unbelievable this world is. We're so used to it Mm -hmm. at this point that it's not awful to us anymore. Um, You know, so I like to make sure that throughout my day, this isn't something that sits on your calendar. This is something you take with you everywhere. It's this idea of what can, during my normal commute, during my walk in the morning that I've walked a thousand times, what can I take uh, special notice of today? What can I set my phone down for a minute or put the Sudoku puzzle down for a minute and just take a step back and say, that's unbelievable, Lord, what you've created here. Thank you for everything that you've done. And the sense of awe, it's almost impossible to have fear and worry exist in the presence of awe. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take it around with you, we call it a practice or a discipline. It's really something that you have to make yourself do because it doesn't come naturally. Mm-hmm. Joel, you encourage people not to burn energy on things they can't control. Like what? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I just did an entire podcast episode on control. Um, and what's interesting about this is uh, I was listening to a psychologist speak at a convention I was at. And uh, this guy uh, was very prominent, had lots of uh, clients. And he said, you know, the one thing that I've learned over years and years of doing this is that my clients all had one thing in common, and it was the desire to control things that were completely outside of their control. Um, And so we talk about in the book, we go through a list of some different things that you need to put down trying to control things or putting any energy into things that you have no control over whatsoever. Like, you know, the example might be the stock market. Um, you know, the political environment. Um, you go down the list of all the things we have going on, uh, which honestly are are crazy. 
Now, I'm not saying bury your head in the sand and don't pay any attention. I'm just saying don't let those things control you back. Um, don't let them be your narrative. And so, like, what we would say is there are things you can actually control. And and we just go down that list in the book. I'll give you an example is we can control our expectations. Um, and we find that people don't control expectations very well. And what I mean by that is we have to realize that life is volatile. It's uncertain. It's ambiguous. And bad things are going to happen. You know, one of my favorite um, pastors that I enjoyed listening to who recently passed away was Tim Keller. Um, and he always used to say, we all have one thing in common, and that's storms. We're either going into one, we're either in one, or we're just exiting one. Mm-hmm. And and what the reason I think this is important is I, I believe that people generally think that their life is going to go loosely to plan. And, and when these unexpected things come along, it really throws them for a loop. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, well, if we do our best to control our expectations, we would think more like, okay, bad things are going to happen. There's going to be some challenges this year. Instead of being surprised by them and kind of knocked off kilter, I want to expect that they're going to happen. And when they do, I'm going to see them as an opportunity for God to refine me, to turn that charcoal into a diamond through pressure. I want to leverage this as a way to get better, not something to be avoided. Okay, so that's a good example of a Mm -hmm. way to try to let go of expectations. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Joel. So I know you have a chapter in your book on faith. So uh, talk about faith and the retired life. Yeah, well, gosh, that's a good one. Um, In my opinion, in my humble opinion as a believer, it's really hard to have a true purpose and a real deep meaning apart from faith. Um, so one reason we put that in the book, well, really twofold, one is faith is a habit. It's something that needs to be practiced daily. So if you are a believer, it needs to be part of every part of your day, devotionals and prayer. But the reason we really wanted faith in there, because most believers know what I just mentioned to you, they understand that. The reason we wanted it in there is we wanted to write the book very thoughtfully that Someone who was not a believer or who who was on the precipice or questioning, they could be given the book by a believer, and it would touch on the faith topic well enough that it would engage them further and not push them away. Nice. Nice. Um, And so I will tell you that the very last page of the book has a QR code on it uh, with a leader guide, conversation guide that can be done in a group. Uh, We've learned that the book does very well in a group setting because everybody's got a story to share and people can grow a lot from learning from one another. Yeah. Well, Joel, thank you so much for doing the show. It's nice to talk to you again, and thank you for your book, After Work. I appreciate you coming back on. Thanks for all your hard work, Bill. You bet. Thanks. Joel Malik has written a book with Alex Lippert and Dean with Dean Merrill called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. You'll enjoy it. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in 
I bet you're like me. I bet you've made a mistake now and then in the past. Maybe it's been a while since you've made a mistake, but you know what? God uses mistakes to shape us, to turn us into something um, more resilient, and God uses those opportunities, and I think making mistakes is pretty important because I've made a lot in my in my life, and I, I've usually learned something pretty significant through all of them, and I'm here Today to talk to Scott Hubbard, he's an editor at DesiringGod.org, and he's written an article that you can find over at DesiringGod.org called Good Leaders Fail Well, How Mistakes Become a Staircase. Scott, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Bill. Yeah. So, all right. If you, you've made mistakes in life, right? <laughs> yeah, this was a very personal article. Okay. So we're both on common ground. Rosie's yep. never made one, but no. but, but we're, uh, <laughs> you know, two out of three in this room is not bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Those are yeah. the odds. And it sounds like nothing has been too large scale or too shocking in your in your world, but uh, enough mistakes, stumbles, uh, sometimes you say sometimes sinful, sometimes not. Yeah, that's right. That was the most surprising part about leadership for me. I anticipated on the front end, and when I say leadership, I mean all, all different kinds. For me, in particular, it's been in, in the realm of ministry of various sorts, leading a uh, small group, and then eventually being a lay pastor. But one of the surprising things I, I expected, you know, this will bring hard, hard decisions, this will bring relational difficulties, you know, just conflict, resolution, that kind of stuff. I didn't expect how much failure it would bring wow. or how much failure I would have to wade through. And like you said, the main things that I have in mind when I say failure aren't the large-scale stuff that would get you, you know, removed from a ministry position mm-hmm. or something like that. Those happen. But the thing I have in mind are the more small-scale small stuff, like little things that sting and just you really wish you had done that or said that differently, yeah. stuff that makes you look backward and just feel a little embarrassed. Well, can you give me some examples? Yeah, I include a, a list here of the kind of things I have in mind that are very common uh, in my own life. So... Whether it's public speaking stuff, you give a sermon and it just comes out flat and doesn't seem to do much of anything. That's tough, by the way. That, yeah, that's painful. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. Or leading a Bible study that just kind of seems to go go nowhere. Or saying things publicly that you regret. Telling a joke that you realize afterward, oh, that was unwise. Or, yeah. or rendering a judgment too quickly or something like that. Mm-hmm. Trying something new, a new initiative in ministry or, you know, in your family maybe that just falls on its face. Having the experience of someone younger, maybe you were discipling them and they end up finding more help elsewhere. Mm-hmm. All, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, old pastor of mine said, if everything you do works, you're not being creative enough. Uh-huh. Amen to that. Yeah, that that's true? right. Yeah, but you one, do need to make mistakes. You totally do. And yeah. in fact, one of the pieces, a friend of mine, as I was thinking about these things, he just said that, yeah, there there are people, some people who need to be making a lot more mistakes yeah. because the lack of mistakes in their life shows they're actually not trying very many they're things. They're playing too safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, some of the leaders, though, who have failed in significant ways and that certainly hurts the the body. Yes, it does, and that's the kind of failure that's of a of a different scale. It can certainly still fall into the categories that we're going to talk about today mm-hmm. of something that 
just wonderfully and miraculously, God still works together for the good of his people and for our good. But um, those are the kind of things we want to avoid at all costs mm-hmm. and be so vigilant against, you know, the church. The church needs fail, needs needs leaders who know how to fail well. Yeah. They The church does not need leaders who fail out of ministry because of some, you know, scandal or something like yeah. that. Well, uh, Scott Hubbard is my guest. Scott, maybe just as we get this discussion going on on leadership failures, maybe we can look into the Old Testament and pick out a couple favorites. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of all over if you yeah, it is. consider it. But some of the people that I had in mind were Moses and David. And then in the New Testament, Peter is the one that would probably come to mind most readily, but really all the disciples. But you think of Moses and and of David. These are men who were familiar with failure. And no doubt on one level, they would have known failure well before they were in leadership positions. Moses, while he was in Midian, just raising a family. David, while he was tending his father's flocks. Because, I mean, you can't get away from failure in this Mm -hmm. world. But once those men became leaders, they knew failure in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. It was now the kinds of mistakes they were making before in a private realm were now in public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not only that, but, you know, if you go from simply raising a family to uh, leading a nation or being a shepherd to being a shepherd of a whole people, just all of a sudden your chances for failure are multiplied because you're trying stuff that you weren't trying before. The stakes are raised. Same thing with Peter and the disciples. They're brought into an unfamiliar world in some ways by leadership. And so mistakes are going to multiply. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the paths. There's you say there's two common paths. Let's talk about those, Scott Hubbard. At least in my own experience, and as I think about just the human heart and what we see in Scripture, it seems like for leaders who fail, there are two common paths, not the only paths, but two common ones in to respond in ways that are not how God would have us respond. The first of them is to wrap yourself around with a kind of cast iron cloak. So now you don't feel mistakes anymore. They just kind of ricochet off of you and you refuse to let your failures really touch your skin and feel them and Mm -hmm. sit with them because it's just so uncomfortable. So you become this just kind of removed, distant kind of leader. And the person that comes to mind from scripture in that regard is King Saul. And he just shows the danger of going down that path. He he became impervious to feeling the failures at their full weight. And so he just gradually grew harder and harder until he was at a spot way different from where he was at the beginning of his kingship. So that's one. Probably the more common path, the one that I'm more prone to, mm-hmm. is to run away in, <laughs> very, in various ways, to feel like crawling under the carpet and the practical expressions of that being, you know, you just, you just don't want to do it again. You don't want to lead again. You don't, you don't want to try that again. You don't want to feel the sting of that failure again. So if you don't remove yourself from leadership, at least you just stop trying so hard. You, you have to protect your brain from going black and white because it can go black and white really fast. Well, what do you mean by that? Like, Oh, I'm never doing that again. That's it. Yeah. I'm not stepping my foot into that pool again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. That's right. The, the always and, and the nevers yeah, yeah, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. So, um, temptation to protect ourselves. Fair. It's fair with all of us. Yeah, it is. It is all of us. And yet, as you think about biblical story, as you think about your own local church, uh, 
if every leader who was stung by failure stepped away from leadership, even as you think about your family, if every leader stung by failure stepped away, there would just be no leaders. <laughs> because That's so true. Failure is just inherent in the task. Yeah. You can't lead well without also failing. And so there's got to be a way where uh, God would do something productive with our failures so we could walk through it better. Scott, do you think we're being more scrutinized than ever before in this day and age when it comes to failures? I mean, if yeah. you have a mistake, it's going to be broadcast everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, the, gonna... the possibilities of becoming exposed for your failures are higher than they were before. No doubt that's true with all the technologies that we have. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, a good point. All right, let's uh, talk about what failures mean. I mean, you say in your article at DesiringGod.org, every failure, a stare. Yeah. Talk about that. This was an image that just proved very helpful for me in the aftermath of the kinds of failures that we've been talking about, which is in the aftermath of failure, what can happen by grace is that the failure itself becomes a stare and our failures become a staircase that the Lord himself makes uh, it's that failures aren't 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 merely this um, just kind of bad experience to grit your teeth and get through, but they can actually become part of what makes you as a leader. So I just talk in the article about how we need this category not only for how leaders make mistakes, but for how mistakes can make leaders. Mm. How it can actually form you, be an integral part of the process for you becoming the leader that God made you to be. So Scott. If you can personalize that, when you've had a mistake, um, how has God shaped you in a more productive way? Well, I have this this kind of three-part, three-step framework that has been helpful for me to try to shepherd my own heart through, especially based on the story that we see in Scripture of Peter's failure and his restoration. But the three things are own your failures— learn from your failures, and then keep leading after your failures. Mm, that's good stuff. I want to take this one step at a time. Yeah. Let's, let's start with owning your failure. We do go back to the story of Peter, Yeah, and he swore he would die before he denied Jesus. How did that work out? <laughs> no, not well. I, that's what I recall. It did not, it did not go <laughs> yeah, well. Good job. You remembered that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but in, instead of fleeing, because you say that is a pretty common response, it's just to flee... Um, he owned it. He did. He could have fleed. And the first mark of him owning it was that he wept like a baby. Mm, yeah. He, bitter weeping. He knows the truth then, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he sees himself for who he is in, a, in the deepest way than he has ever seen himself. And he feels it so deeply. He doesn't run. And one of the remarkable things, it's just a minor note in the story, but you, the next, you know, the next time you see Peter, where is he? He's with the other disciples. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to do that. He could have run away. Yeah. How embarrassing to go back to those men and to be known as the man who did that, to yeah, have to no tell kidding. them, to have to tell the ones who didn't hear about it yet. Yeah, that, I, I did that. How embarrassing. Yeah. And yet he did it because there's this posture that he has of totally owning it. And then the last picture you see is with him and Jesus on the shore of Galilee, John 21, where he offers no justification, no excuse, no rationalization, but just owns it there before his Lord. Do you think any of the other disciples were maybe not talking to him, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he was there with them, but, you know, yeah. we don't know how friendly They're like, they we were. ran away, but we didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, so he's he's standing um, 
before the Lord in that uh, John 21 and owning his failure. Uh, that's, that's significant. Um, yeah. So you say in your article, sometimes, of course, our failures are matters more of weakness than of sin. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think that's an important category to keep open. The kinds of failures we've been talking about kind of go, go over both sides of that divide. Some of them are sinful. You know, you, you, tell, you say a joke or you utter a judgment publicly you shouldn't have said. It's a you know, hastiness of speech. Those are things you need to ask forgiveness for most right. likely. But then a lot of the stuff we've been talking about runs into the category of weakness, of uh, immaturity maybe. Stuff you don't need forgiveness for but that you're still responsible for. You know, whether by your own inexperience, you just made a mistake. And I, I think in those moments, the same categories still apply. Often God is revealing something to us in those moments about ourselves that we really need to see. And sometimes deeply we need to see it. And if we don't see it, if we refuse to see it, refuse to own it, then it's going to shortcut this process that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Scott, I'd love for you to spend a little more time talking about the difference between sin and immaturity. Yeah, I would say, let me just... I mean, I know sin. To give an example. I I don't have any problem with that. Maybe it's the immaturity part. An example of immaturity would be, you know, let's say you start some kind of ministry initiative. You start a certain outreach to a particular group of people or a certain kind of small group. And for various reasons, it was unwise. Like it wasn't the right time. Oh, gotcha. It wasn't the right approach. Yeah. Um, Things in hindsight that you can see really clearly... Uh, you know, maybe maybe you started a new small group from your old one. It was just too quick. Like you jumped the gun. And it wasn't because you did it out of pride, but you just did it out of inexperience. And you look back, it did damage, you know. It it caused some hurt along the way, but it wasn't ultimately something that was out of a, a hard heart. It was just out of immaturity. Yeah. And that still hurts. No, no kidding. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He is over at DesiringGod.org. We're talking about Uh, leaders that fail well and how mistakes can become like a staircase. We'll take a short break and be right back with Scott. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. So glad to be with Scott Hubbard today. We're talking about failures, and God will use your failures, so just relax. He's at work in your life, and if you're experiencing failures now and then, it's because you're taking risks, hopefully calculated ones, and God will reveal and teach you through your failures. Scott says, every failure is like a stair. That was a beautiful illustration, Scott. Now, if you missed any of this, you're going to want to hear it from the beginning, because Scott is very... um, intentional with everything he says, which is one of the reasons I love having him on the show. So let's talk about, uh, we talked about owning your failure, and Peter did a great job of that. Uh, he went out and wept bitterly, and then he owned his failure uh, to, in front of the Lord. And now let's move on to what we can learn, how we learn. Yeah, so owning failure, if that's the first step, that's kind of getting into the posture of being teachable from our failures as opposed to getting your back up and, uh, you know, receiving it with a prideful heart or receiving it with a heart that's just so full of, so full of shame and embarrassment that you, you've run away entirely. Peter struck right in the middle where he felt it deeply and he didn't run away. 
So that's owning, and that is really just putting you in the posture of a learner. And I think that part of benefiting from failure comes not only from recognizing, you know, raising your hand, as it were, as the one who is responsible, but from at that point, turning and taking a look at the failure right in the face and asking what it has to teach us for next time, which is so painful. It's so because painful. Because it requires having this kind of long-term vision in mind. Yeah. If you just have today in mind, just have this week in mind, it can feel so tempting just to shove that thought aside in the aftermath of a failure just to soothe yourself to distract yourself to do anything but from mulling over what just happened or if you do mull it over sometimes it can just be a temptation to feel this fresh sense of mere shame or condemnation Mm -hmm. but here's the passage that gives me hope for what we can learn this is what jesus tells peter actually before peter denies jesus Jesus says to Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So right there, even before the denials happen, Jesus is able to see the man that Peter is going to become through his failure. (laughs) You know, as he's now chastened about the kind of man that he is, he realizes more of his own sinfulness and realizes more of Christ's sufficiency for him. Jesus is able to look and see, you're going to be an apostle. And so I need you to have this long range vision in mind. I no doubt Peter remembered those words as words of hope in the aftermath of his failure, that Jesus had not today and its shame in mind, ultimately, but tomorrow and its maturity in mind. I love that when we play with the the, the long, the big picture in mind, it's a completely different experience, regardless of how painful it is the day you're examining your failure. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you can be mature enough to say, but in the long run... Yeah. Which is not easy to do, Scott Hubbard. No, it's I not. Because, yeah. <laughs> On the one hand, you have to, you know, shove away those thoughts that you just want to distract yourself. And then as you go and walk patiently back through the failure, you have to avoid at every point just this mere shame or mm-hmm. mere condemnation that comes yeah. along. So it has to be this walking with Jesus. In the midst of failure, you know, our forgiving Lord, the same Lord who walked with Peter on the Galilean shore and said and restored him. Do you love me, Peter? Mm-hmm. And offering him the threefold affirmation of his love for his Lord. What if you have one of those continuous loops in your brain and you start replaying the failures and all that does is lead you to a place of shame or or you feel like condemnation? Yeah. Talk about that. That's good uh, because that's no doubt a common experience. I think, on and this is probably where community comes in so helpfully, Walking through failure well, I don't talk about this in the article, but walking through failure well requires other people. Uh, Peter had Jesus in the flesh to do this with him, Mm -hmm. to walk with him through his failure, to restore him. We often need the spirit of Jesus plus the people of Jesus to help us walk through failure well. And I think if we're doing that in community with people we love and trust, they're going to be able to help us spot what are the things we can learn from this and then where are we just spiraling? And need to be told, no, it's not time to go back there again. It's time to set that aside. You've learned from it. You know what you've learned from it. And now let's move on, which is obviously easier said than done. And so if when when the spiral happens, when you realize, oh, I'm just continuing to go back here, this is a loop. Mm -hmm. That's a fight of faith now. 
where it requires, you know, some defiance and some steadfast hope in the promises of God for us, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And right now I've done the work of learning from this. Mm -hmm. I I need to move on. Yeah. I'm just thinking if if you've made a mistake, you kind of want to keep it to yourself as best you can. You're not going to say, hey, friends, gather around. Let (laughs) let me tell you about my big mistake. (laughs) I mean, so that community part would be uh, a struggle. But there you have vulnerability and accountability. You do. Yeah. And here's the deal. We're the community of the cross. I where, know. Uh, where I, I know. We get in by saying, hey, I'm a big failure. Hey, I'm a big sinner. That's, yeah. that's the entrance. That's the entrance, and that is still the terms of membership. I know. <laughs> I try to say something smart, and he just says something smarter. That's always the way it works with Scott Hubbard. No, so it can be this, this fresh invitation into the gospel, right? Oh, no, like, exactly. Yeah, this yeah. is who I am. This is who Jesus is. Yeah. I wonder how good we are at owning our mistakes and, and saying, what can I learn from these? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote this article because I'm not very good at it. Okay. And it's something that I really need to grow in. I, I'm, you know, among a kind of leader where one of the things I struggle with most is kind of insecurity and this feeling of, uh, you know, feeling like a, uh, a failure often. Okay. And getting caught up in things that have, you know, second, second guessing, regrets, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I need this a lot. So maybe you can give us some imagery. Let's say I've made a mistake and I'm suffering and I'm, I'm just, I'm down. Can you, can you give it me, give us any imagery? Well, I talk about this, you know, staircase that the Lord is making often in our failures. And I'll just read a a line that I wrote in here that is something that I need to hold on to. So what, what what might happen if we asked for help from Jesus to walk alongside us to help us review our failures with an eye toward tomorrow? Here's what here's what we might find. We might find that errors become humility, that mistakes become maturings, that regrets become wisdom, that self inadequacy becomes Christ sufficiency, and that failures become reliable stairs. So that staircase image is one that I find myself repeating to myself now. And when I'm feeling the sting of making a mistake, Mm -hmm. every failure is a stair. He's building a staircase made of failure if I'll own this and learn from it and then keep leading. Yeah, boy, that's significant. There's also a great image in this article at desiringgod.org of if you're if you're down, imagine Jesus lifting you up from the ground, looking you in the eye, and offering both a question and a call. Yeah, boy, there's truth and grace right there, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. So this now gets to the final step of keep leading, and it's that John twenty one scene with Jesus and Peter. That's what he does to Peter. He offers him a question and a call. Mm-hmm. The question was, "Do you love me? <laughs> you love me, Peter." And one of the things that that reminds us, that tells us, is that through failure, not only does God mature us as leaders, but there's actually the possibility of coming to a deeper experience of the love of Christ for us and a deeper experience of love for Christ in us. Because before the failure, I have no doubt that Peter really loved Jesus, but it was shallower than he thought it was. It couldn't withstand the test of Good Friday. Mm-hmm. But then... On the shore where he met Jesus, his love was still real, but now it was way deeper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that happened only through the failure, only through knowing more of who Jesus is in failure. Mm -hmm. 
And then that question also is a, is a kind of steadying and a kind of reorienting. It reminds us that uh, leadership is ultimately about us. It's not about our reputation, but it's about Jesus. And therefore, if we love him, then we can risk being made to look foolish again. Mm-hmm. We can risk mistakes. Yeah. Scott, we just have about a minute left. And there's people listening right now that have just been reminded of a mistake or they're in the middle of one right now and they're suffering and they're thinking, how do I get some relief from this uh, pain? Maybe we could just close this by praying. Would yeah, you mind? I'd be glad to. Yeah, Father, thank you that you are the great restorer of souls and that Jesus showed himself as the Savior who restores us. And after he told Peter, asked Peter, do you love me, that he said, follow me. And so I pray for those who are feeling the sting of a mistake, that they would do all the necessary things of looking backward, receiving forgiveness from you where they need to, and then when that work is done, you would protect from the evil one, and their eyes would be set forward on what it would look like to follow Jesus this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, this week, and they would have a great hopefulness about the future. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott Hubbard. Always a delight to have you here in studio. You can learn more about Scott at DesiringGod.org. The article that we discussed today was called Good Leaders Fail Well, How Mistakes Become a Staircase. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.